thank you so much for joining the Faith Chapel podcast. Wherever you may be joining us from, we hope that you know that you are loved and that this message encourages you throughout your week. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, a beautiful day for the neighborhood. Could you be mine? Won't you be mine? You guys know the song, don't you? I mean, from 1968 to 2001, Fred Rogers started every single one of his episodes with that song. How many of you don't know that song? That means you're either really, really old, and I'm not trying to point out people who had their hands raised right over here, or you're really, really young. I don't know which it is in the house, right? But he goes on to say this. He goes on to say this. Won't you be, won't you please, oh, won't you please, Please won't you be my neighbor. And what people heard as they tuned in every single week to, to Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, they didn't just hear a man, they didn't just hear an ordained minister, they just didn't hear what they heard coming out of that song that began, that began every single one of those episodes was, I really want to invite you to be in my world. I would really love for you to be a part of my life. I want you to be my neighbor. Please come and be my neighbor. It was an invitation to, 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 to be together. It was an invitation for, for them to be in relationship with one another. And he knew exactly what he meant. Even though he was famous all around the world, he never really thought of himself as being a celebrity. He said this, he goes, I always thought that I was just a neighbor who just came in for a visit. I was just a neighbor who came into your home for a visit, who came into your life for a visit. And, and I was thinking as we started this series today and, and God put it on our heart months ago to do a, a series on neighbor and being neighborly. I was just wondering if that's really what Christians should be doing. That really we're just wanting to invite you in for a visit. That we just want to be a part of your world and you be a part of ours. We just want to have a connection. Mother Teresa said, how can you love a God whom you do not see if you do not love a neighbor whom you see, whom you touch and who you live? And that's really what this series is all about. I don't even know if it's a term, but we're going to call it neighboring or neighbor. And, 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 and we're going to ask some questions like, how can we be a good neighbor? Is it important to Jesus that we even practice neighboring? And what are all these questions and all these things? We're going to look at them. In fact, there was somebody that went to Jesus and had these same questions. There's a Jewish lawyer and he came to Jesus and he asked couple of questions. The first one was this. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And I hope you're following along in the app and, and you're taking notes there. But in Luke 10, 25, it says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Let me just stop right here and say, that's a great question. Remember, he's an expert in the law. He knows the Bible. And yet he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do to go to heaven? What do I need to do to make sure that my life is right with God? And if you haven't figured that out yet on your journey of faith, I hope you'll do it today. And if you're watching online, I hope you do the same thing. I hope that you'll open your heart and ask at least this question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Because this is the most important question you'll ever ask. There are all, there's all kinds of decisions that you'll make in your life and, and many, many important decisions. But the most important decision is centered around this one question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And here's how Jesus answered in verse 26. Well, he says, what is written in the law and how do you read it? 
In other words, what he was saying is, you're an expert in the law. Let's take you back to the law. How do you read it? How do you interpret it? What is it saying? You interpret it. You know the law. Interpret it. What is it saying? And it's interesting to me is that Jesus really takes this expert the law back to the law, knowing because he knows the law. So he's really kind of setting him up. And in verse 27, he says, well, it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So you can better understand what's happening here. The expert in the law is reciting what is known as the Shema. He's reciting something that's found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. In every single good Jewish person would recite this three times a day. In fact, there is no worship service where this isn't proclaimed over the assembly that's there, that's all brought together. The Shema is filled with doctrinal truth and a subsequent obligation for every single hearer. Think about it. When you hear this, it puts you, your entire being, on notice. What are we supposed to do? Love the Lord your God. How do we do it? With all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. We're on notice. We were obligated now to go and live in that doctrinal truth. We're totally immersed now in what God is saying. I want you to come and recognize and put me first in everything that happens. Then it reveals also God's covenant with his people and his heart for his people. Listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Here, that word here is the Hebrew term Shema, where they get the title for it. O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. What you might miss here is that Jesus is really asking him, do you love the Torah or the Torah of love? In your notes, I put it like this. Do you love the law or the law of love? Which is taking precedent in your life? And can we stop and just have a really honest conversation this morning? Because as we kick this off, this is really what this is about. This is where spirituality and practicality intersect. It's where they collide. And here's this religious man who comes to Jesus and asks him a question like, he's religious, he has all that figured out, right? He's even able to quote Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 without even hesitation. And yet he still doesn't know how to get to heaven. He doesn't know how to find eternity. Can I tell you, I think that there are a lot of churches this morning that are filled with people that are there because of the experience, but they don't know how to get to heaven. They're there because they like being around people or they like what they're hearing or they get propped up or it's they're checking a box off their list that, hey, we went to church and everything's great. And so in other words, they love the law, but they don't love the law of love. There's a big difference. And we're going to have to ask ourselves, are we falling into that same mindset as this Jewish lawyer? Do we go to Bible studies? Do we come to church? Are we doing our daily prayers? Are we serving? Are we doing all those things because it's the law and we fell in love with it? Or are we really doing those things because we love God and we love our neighbor? Because see, Jesus looked at this very religious man and said, there's a big difference between being religious and being spiritual. There's a big difference between being religious and and understanding those things and actually living those things out. So the love of the law or the law of love, which is it do you tend to gravitate towards? 
Some people are very prideful even of the fact that they can quote so many scriptures or they go to so many Bible studies a week or they have so much memorized or they've served so many years or they're involved in so many ministries, but yet the love of God doesn't really permeate through their being to where it's making a difference in somebody else's life. So again, can we just pause here for a moment before we move on with the story and ask ourselves, have we become like the Jewish lawyer? Have we become a little bit too religious and not enough spirituality in our lives to where the motive isn't to actually check boxes and make sure that we're abiding by the rules, but we're actually doing what we do because there's a spirit of love that's in our life. So how important is this, Pastor? Well, it must be pretty important because when the Jewish lawyer came to Jesus and asked him, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, well, all the laws of the prophet, I mean, everything that's ever been written can be summed up in just these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. Your relationship is vertical there. And then the second is likened to the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's their horizontal so it goes love and love, love up and love side of love, vertically love, horizontally, love towards God, love towards others. So if Jesus is telling him these, everything in all the scripture hinges upon these two things, how many of you know it might be kind of important? And we need to ask ourselves, what side of that equilibrium are we on? Are we on that more religious side or more on the side of love side? But here's what Jesus went on to say in verse 28. And you would expect this because he is an expert in the law and Jesus took him back to the law. He quotes the law. So Jesus comes out and he just says, you've answered correctly. You got it right. Good for you. You did it. So do this and you will live. It's interesting. The word that is chosen in the scripture, live is actually life or to experience God's very best. That if you do these things, if you learn how to love God with every part of your being and you learn to love your neighbor as yourself, then what you're really doing is, is that you're going to experience God's best life here now. That you don't have to wait to heaven. You don't have to wait to get to heaven, but you can experience the best of God right now here on earth because you're, you're going to be doing the very thing that God wants you to do, loving God and being a good neighbor. But then it brings this Jewish lawyer to the second question, verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus this second question. Well then, who is my neighbor? Anybody else see this but me? <laughs> Why does he jump to this neighbor? I mean, Jesus, said, Jesus goes, let me give you two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. And he's like, okay. He jumps to the neighbor part. Anybody see a problem with this? Like this might be revealing something about his attitude, right? Or where he is spiritually. Oh, I've got the whole God thing down. I don't need to ask any more questions about that. I don't need to know what it means to love God with my heart, with my soul, with my mind. Or with my I've got that down. Like, I, I, I am a religious teacher of the law. I've got it all. I've got that part figured out. So he jumps right to the neighbor part. Oh, uh, who's, who's my neighbor? How do I do that? How do I do that part? And he did it. He asked this question to justify himself. The word justify there in the Greek means this, to show yourself to be righteous or declare yourself righteous. So now we're getting a little better understanding of his heart, aren't we? He's saying, I'm already righteous before God. I don't need to ask any of those questions. So how do I go and love my neighbor? How many know you can't love your neighbor if you don't first love God? And maybe if he would ask better questions, he would have got a better answer. 
If he would have went back to God and he would learn to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that it would have become easier for him to love those that were around him. But he bypasses the fact that God is love and that's the spirit of God that's dwelling inside of you and I. And so that's the spirit that's trying to get out of us as we are declar as we declare the light in a dark world, as we carry the very aroma of Christ everywhere we go, that our responsibility is to make sure that we are letting people put God on display in our life because God's in us. Love of God is in us. You can't love others unless you first love God. He jumps right over that part. He says, look, I'm already righteous. <laughs> the Bible tells us this. There is no one righteous. No, not one. So he's already kind of revealing his heart. He already reveals where he's at. But Jesus doesn't answer this second question directly, does he? For those of you who know. He begins to tell this parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he said there was this man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and, and he was traveling. And what happened was there was a band of thieves that saw him and he must have been vulnerable. And they took advantage of him. They beat him to death, half to death. They stripped him of his clothes and they took everything that he had. He's laying on the side of the road and now he's naked, he's lost, and he's completely left for dead. And a a religious man, in fact, a priest comes by and sees him. Now, before we get too, before we get too, you know, negative towards the priest, the priest is actually living out the law, which is why Jesus showed this story, because here's a teacher of the law coming to him with these questions. See, the priest wasn't, wouldn't be able to, in this day and age, to walk on the same side of the street as this man who's naked, because he's naked and he's unclean, and so he can't put his eyes upon him, so he has to come all the way over here to the other side of the street and walk down the road. Again, I think he loves the law more than the law of love. And then the very next person comes along and he's a Levite. Same principle applies to him. Like he's gonna be unclean, so I can't be unclean. So he walks all the way over here to the other side and he begins to take his track away. Meanwhile, here's this guy laying in the side of the road, naked, stripped, dead, left for dead, nothing. But then a Samaritan shows up. Now, Samaritans were considered like the lowest of the low in their culture. In fact, there's this war between the Jews and the Samaritans to determine like who is the real followers of God and the people, the Jews thought that they were, so they put them down and put them on the lowest rung possible. I mean, if it was possible to bleed below dogs, they were there. They did not travel through Samaria. They didn't talk to Samaritans. They didn't like the Samaritans at all. So Jesus chooses this outcast. He says, and a Samaritan comes. He walks alongside and he sees him and he goes to him and he tends to him. And Jesus asked a question to this religious ruler. He asked him, he said, who do you think was the neighbor? Because that's the question, right? Who's the neighbor? And he says, well, I suppose the one who showed mercy. And he goes, again, you've answered correctly. So then he tells him this, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing. So how did Jesus answer the question? How did he say, if we're supposed to be good neighbors and you and I are supposed to be good neighbors, what's the answer to that question? Go and do likewise. Well, what is likewise? What did, what did the Samaritan do? Give you three quick characteristics before I let you go today. There in your notes, the first one is this. The good Samaritan had blind compassion. In verse 33, he said, he saw him, he took pity on him. The term pity here is moved in your inward parts. 
Like literally there's a stirring on the inside of you. It's more than just noticing. It's something that is moving you physically. It's, a, it's to feel compassion. And compassion means placing ourselves in the individual's position and feeling everything that they feel. That's key. Because it's not just empathy. Compassion moves beyond empathy. I can look at somebody and go, wow, that's terrible. But I'm going to keep going on, right? And that puts me in the same boat as the, as the priest or the Levi. Where I, wow, that's terrible. But I'm, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not bringing that into my world. That's going to take too much time. And so they begin to come over here and they just pass on the other way. But real compassion is not only sees it, but feels it. And it also moved into action based upon the realization that's before them. So we're going to be good neighbors like God wants us to be. And he wants us to be that for sure. If we're going to be good neighbors, we're going to be neighboring, then we're going to have to be, have blind compassion. Because look, the Samaritan didn't care that he was a Jew. The Samaritan didn't care that the, the day and age said that you don't have fellowship with someone that doesn't look like you, act like you, speak like you. The only thing the Samaritan saw was there was somebody in need and he was moved with compassion to the point that it caused him to move into action. That's compassion. If our world's gonna be different and we're gonna be good neighbors and we're gonna have to have blind compassion, it really doesn't matter what the person looks like, acts like where they're from, what color their skin or what kind of education they are, what they smell like or any other thing you can throw out there. But it's really, is there a need and does it need to be met? Because that's the role of the church. That's the role of a good neighbor. A good neighbor sees a need and we act, we move, we go towards them because compassion, something is stirring on the inside of us. And compassion is a very Christ-centered characteristic. And if Christ really is in us, then when we find needs and we see needs and we should be stirred just like the Samaritan was stirred. And that's what the message Jesus was trying to get across is that we need to be stirred. We need to feel that. We need to move us towards meeting that need. It has to happen if we call ourselves Christians, if we are going to be a good neighbor. Look at number two. Second characteristic of good Samaritan is this. It was faith-filled generosity. Look at verse 34. It says, he went to him and he bandaged his womb. He poured oil and wine upon him. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's a full day's wage, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense that you may have. I've heard it said this, that a ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Can I say it a different way? A life when you live your life and it doesn't cost you anything, you get nothing back out of it. You usually get in life what you put into it. You get what, you've, what, you, what you sow, in other words. You always receive what you sow. There's a harvest that comes when you sow into that harvest, amen? And he's saying, that, look, if it costs you nothing, you're not accomplishing, you're not gonna get anything out of it. But the Samaritan, it cost him his time, it cost him his money, it cost him effort. And he even was willing to pay, even though there was no possibility of repayment. That's why I call it faith-filled generosity. Because generosity is always going the extra mile. In today's age, it would probably be something like this, that you see somebody there and you pick up your phone, you dial 911, you say, hey, on the corner of 4th and Main, there is a guy that it looks like he's been beaten up and it looks like he is like half naked and it looks like he's pretty bad. Could you please roll a unit to this location and make sure there's an ambulance coming? And they go, we're on it. We'll send somebody right. You go, hey, thanks. Click and we're on our way. 
Generosity goes above and beyond. Generosity goes above and beyond the expectation. It always exceeds the expectation. It always goes above and beyond what the need of the person is. He, he could have just bandaged his wound, got him to a doctor and took off. But no, he said he was going to go tend his business and come back the next day to check on him and even pay if there was any expense, he would even pay beyond what he had already given the person. So what about our lives again? Have we gotten so used to the religious side that we're no longer spiritually moved into generosity for people who are hurting? I don't know about you, but it bothers me that we go down the hill of our church and right across the street of our own church that many times there's homeless people living in that area down there. And I wonder if we've ever stopped and asked them to come into the side of the church on a Sunday, bought them a cup of coffee and given them a donut and asked them to stay. Because see, that's the love that, of Jesus that they'll, that they'll encounter and understand. It's going above and beyond. It's generosity. Proverbs nineteen seventeen said, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Did you catch that? Whatever you do for the least of these, you're doing it straight into the Lord, in other words. And he will reward that He will personally reward you for what you have done. In other words, God is very much watching what we do and how we do it. And when we do it in his name and we take care of the lesser, we make sure we go above and beyond and we're generous and we're making sure that we're taking care of people's needs and we're finding needs and that God is watching. He says, I'm going to reward you. I love that. That's who I am. That's part of me. That's part of my characteristics. That's part of my heart for my people. Thank you for taking care of my people. I'm going to reward you and get even more blessing to you because I know if I get it to you, I can get it through you and we'll make an even greater impact together. That's what God wants to do in your life. And third characteristic is this. Are you still with me? You're awful quiet out there. Come on now. You can just say, oh, me instead of amen. If you like, it's the same. And these kind of messages. Fear of God, the fear of God. See, I think that when we get to this religious place, instead of more in this practical spirituality place, when we're checking boxes instead of actually living out our faith, then one thing that we lose, and this is a big loss, is we begin to lose the fear of the Lord. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. When we don't fear the Lord, then we don't have this holy reverence of really who God is, and we begin to treat that which was common, where that which is sacred rather as common, there is a biblical principle in God's word that whenever something that was set apart, made sacred, was treated as common, God looked upon that with his wrath. And I wonder if we are looking upon sacred things now as common because we don't have a holy reverence for God. We don't reverence his house like we should. We don't reverence God's servants like we should. We don't reverence his word like we should. We don't reverence his spirit like we should. We're not good stewards of his spirit and him wanting to do something in every one of our services because we're checking boxes that we've been to church instead of coming hungry for God. See, the fear of the Lord will never allow you to walk in here and treat what is sacred as common. 
You come in with a desire to meet with God and say, God, you've designed me, you've created me, you know me, you knit me together in my innermost being. When I was in my mother's womb, you call me by name. You have a purpose and a plan for my life. And I know today you have something uniquely, profoundly special and unique and for my life. And I want everything that you have for me today because I'm going to be transformed and I'm going to be made into your image. Well, that's way different than just let's go to church. Let's check a box. I feel good. The message was good. And then sometimes you show up on Sundays like this and it's not right? Hey, I don't like these messages any more than you do. So I just need your help out there a little bit. Okay. Like you think, you know, a lot more fun when you're into it a lot more, right? But how many, you know, we need this in the church and we need these in our lives, especially if we're going to be good neighbors. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in and I needed clothes and you clothed me and I was sick and you look after me and I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you when you're thirsty and gave you a drink? When do we see you as a stranger and invited you in? When did we see you needing clothes and clothed you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go and visit you? He said, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for the one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it for, unto me. You did it for me. We're doing it to the Lord. I think if we're being good neighbors and what we're doing is we're trying to, we're trying to look at the people that are around us and we're saying, how can we invest in their life? How can we connect with them? What, what can we do to be great neighbors? And so I want you to take some action steps and we're going to have this as a part of this series. I know it's not like every week, but there's two action steps that you need to take this week. If we're going to take this serious by now, how many of you believe that we're to be good neighbors, right? That we're to be practicing good neighbors. Okay. So if that's the case, then look at action step. Number one, do you actually know your neighbors? Step number one is just write down their names. Could you write down the names of all the neighbors that you live around? I mean, if I'm being honest, like I know the people that are like on this side of me and I know the husband's name to that guy and everybody else, I really don't know. And that's wrong. I mean, if I could just be honest and transparent and vulnerable, like that's wrong of me. Like I'm not being a good neighbor. I only know one, maybe two people's names. Look at the second one, write down the relevant information about them. Like, you know, where do they work? Do they have kids? I mean, just some relevant information, just generalized stuff. And then thirdly, write down in-depth information. Like what do they fear? What's their favorite restaurant? What's their favorite meal? What's their favorite color? I don't know, something, something that's more in-depth. Here's the scary part. The experts say that 10% of Americans can only do level one. Can I interpret that for you so you understand? That means 90% of Americans don't know the names of their own neighbors. Again, can we just stop? Because we're being real. This is where spirituality, right, can, can collides with practicality. If Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, and you don't even know their name, how many know we're not being good neighbors? 
And just a few moments ago, y'all raised your hand and said, yeah, being a good neighbor, that's what God wants us to be. And nobody's raising their hand now. Right? And I know that it hurts, but we're going to have to dive in. If this is what scripture said, if God says, listen, everything in all the Bible hinges upon these two things, that you love God, well, your heart, soul, mind is right, and you be a good neighbor, and you don't even know their name, my guess is, is that we're not being good neighbors. That we need to get outside of our comfort zone just a little bit and force ourselves and ask God to help us and empower us and give us the strength that we need to go and be the neighbors that God wants. If 90% of us don't even know our neighbors' names, something's wrong. Look what it says. 3% can do level two and less than 1% can actually do level three. So we're gonna build upon this each week. What's actually step number two? Write out your compelling story, your testimony. And let me just give you some themes that might help. Bondage to liberation, isolation to connection. Maybe it's from fear to faith. Maybe it's from darkness to light. Maybe it's from brokenness to restoration. But whatever God's done in your life, write that out so that you can share that with someone. So once you know their name and it's appropriate because you've been praying for them by name and God opens the door, you can say, hey, this is what God has done in my life. Can I tell you, I wouldn't be standing here today if somebody wasn't a good neighbor for me. I was attending church. I was in God's house every single Sunday. It was a mainline denominational church and, and I, I thought I was checking all the boxes. I'd given my life to Christ. I went to the same church my grandparents went. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. It's your grandparents' church and they live in a different city, but I found the church that they went to, the denomination they went to. I started going to that church every single week. And yet somebody was a good enough neighbor to say, hey, what's God doing in your life? I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I was reading a scripture today and this is what God showed me. And I'm like, God shows you stuff? <laughs> yeah. Hey, we were praying for this for a couple of weeks and God responded and he answered my prayer. I'm like, God doesn't answer any of my prayers. He said, if you, you need to come to my church. I'm like, why do I need to come to your church? You need to come to my church because God does this in our church. I'm like, I don't know about that church. I didn't know anything about Pentecostalism at the time. But they kept talking about what God was doing in their life and it stirred something on the inside of me where I'm like, I gotta go to this guy's church. They were our neighbors. And I showed up one Sunday and I walked in the door and I mean, it was one of those services. I mean, it was crazy. They put me on the front row of all that craziness. I mean, they sung songs for an hour and they did not have the hymn numbers in the bulletin like I'm used to. So I didn't even know what hymn to turn to. Anybody else grow up in that church? get there like 10 minutes early and you put the hymn, you put a little piece of paper in the hymn numbers so you can turn to them quick in the service. I love to sing and worship God and I couldn't sing a single song because I didn't know what they were doing. And when they got done, the pastor said this, he goes, the Holy Spirit's here for healing. I'm like, what is that? If you need healing, come forward. And a bunch of people went forward. Remember, I'm on the front row. This guy with hearing aids in both ears, he was there and the pastor went and prayed for him. He fell down and his head was between my feet. I couldn't move to my left or my right. I couldn't move forward. And the pew was in the backside. I'm just standing there going, this is awkward. Like I can't even sit down. I mean, this is crazy. And then I saw that guy get up and he pulled those hearing aids out of his ears and he threw them in the trash can that was down at the altar. And he said, pastor, God healed me. I can hear you clearly. I haven't been able to hear since I was 30 years old. Somebody invited me. Somebody was a good neighbor. 
And I remember driving away from that day going, that was crazy. That was nuts. I have no idea what just happened, but I'm going back because God was there. And it would happen because somebody was a good neighbor to me. Literally, they were our neighbor. Write out your story. So when God opens up a door, you've got a two-minute version. And you can say, this is what God's done in my life. I was in darkness and God did this. I was in bondage to sin. I was in drugs or alcohol. And this is what happened when I gave my life to Jesus. And let God begin to use your story to impact people's lives. Because if we're supposed to be good neighbors, then let's reach out to our neighbors and let them know what God's doing in our life. Because that's how it works. How many of you are ready to let God do something in your life this morning? How many of you want to be a good neighbor? Come on, put your hand real high. Like, I want to be a good neighbor. I want to fulfill this. Then bow your heads and pray with me. Father, all over this place right now, you see every head bowed. You see every hand that's raised. You see every, the condition of every heart that's here. And God, I pray in the name of Jesus, the Lord, I just commission this church to be a church that understands neighboring, that we understand how to be moved with compassion, that we understand that it moves us into action, that, that we understand how to fear and reverence God, that we, that we got to practice the characteristics of the good Samaritan and we let our lives be shared with others like Mr. Rogers, won't you be, oh, won't you be? Can we just give that invitation to the people that are around us? Like, I just want to come for a visit. I just want to come for a visit. How you doing? There's so many people that are struggling, that are hurting, that need a good neighbor. Maybe you've called us. So commission us this morning to be the neighbors you want us to be, whether it be in our workplaces, our schools, our actual neighborhoods. And God, I believe that this next month will be a month of miraculous occurrences. People's lives being transformed, brought from darkness to light because of your people, because of your people. Now, as heads are bowed, eyes are closed, no one's looking around, you're here, we're gonna end the service this way. Remember the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you don't know the answer to that question, can I tell you, the answer is Jesus. It's bringing Christ in your life. It's allowing your sins to be completely forgiven. The Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, Pastor, saved from what? What does that even mean? From all the things that you've ever done wrong, all the thoughts that you've ever thought that you knew or that you know are less than godly from every, everything that you've ever tried to do and it's failed for everything. The Bible says he'll throw all of those things, your sin and all of it into a sea called forgiveness and he'll remember it against you no more. So listen to me, if that's you today and you're watching online, I'm asking you, will you open your heart to Jesus? Will you say yes? He said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those things will all be gone brand new beginning. And I want to help you with that confession this morning. I want to help you 
There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's really a condition of your heart and you looking up to heaven and recognizing that you need a savior. But there's so many people that don't know maybe how to get started in this. And so I, I wanna help you say this prayer. And would you say this prayer with me whether you're watching online, stop what you're doing and say it with me. I know God is there and he's convicting you. Maybe you're here in this room right now. Would you say this prayer? Everyone that's here, say this with me. Say, dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to come into my life. I choose to make you my Lord and Savior. Help me to live for you in all that I do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast. If you'd like to further connect with us here at Faith Chapel, visit us online at faithchapelsd.com or any social media platform at Faith Chapel SD. See you real soon.